when I was a kid, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, now I'm a food and drink photographer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Clay Williams. Clay began photographing food and drink for blogs, newspapers, and magazines in 2007. In the year since, he's hung off the back of food trucks in Paris, sweated out in tight kitchens with Michelin-starred chefs, and wandered through cattle farms with a team of butchers. He has shot assignments for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the James Beard Foundation, and Imbibe Magazine. Clay has been a contributor to a number of travel books and cookbooks, most recently 111 Rooftops in New York That You Must Not Miss by Leslie Adato. Clay is also the co-founder of Black Food Folks, a fellowship of black professionals working in food, food service, and food media. The group has provided a space for members to meet, network, collaborate, and promote their work. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Clay. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Of course. So we always like to start with a current curiosity, something that's recently sparked our interest. And in anticipation of our talk, I was actually just watching Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. And I was watching the Montreal episode because I've I'm dying to go to Montreal as soon as this is all over. Montreal's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, my aunt is from Montreal and she said awesome things about it. And so I watched this episode and they were showing Phil checking out some Montreal bagels. And I'm a big bagel guy. So it was really cool to see they look delicious, but they look different than like the New York bagel, for example. Absolutely. Totally. They're a little smaller. They have a different sort of. Not quite the texture, but it's a, it's a little different, definitely. Yeah, so I was I was so curious, like the Montreal food scene, and specifically Montreal bagels, have captured my attention because I've I've heard about them here and there as somebody who's who's like interested in food, but it was super cool to see how they're made. And he went to he went to a bakery or a bagel shop, and it was it just looked like heaven. So as soon as I have the opportunity to travel, Montreal is at the top of my list, and a, a bagel will be my first meal there. <laughs> been a few years since i've been but uh yeah it's uh it's a great city i love it though. yeah just don't go in the winter yes just don't go in the winter yeah. so i've been told yeah my aunt who grew up there said yeah. it, uh, definitely if you can go another time go another time <laughs> the first time i ever went to montreal was um i don't know how many years ago now um and and you know, I figured it's in the Northeast. It's not far from New York. Uh, how much different could the weather be? Uh, so I went for the long weekend around Thanksgiving. And I arrived um, at about 5 o'clock in the evening, 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. I took the, took the train. And um, I got to the hotel and it started flurrying and it didn't stop snowing for two days there was literally like a foot and a half of snow everywhere um and it was and everyone was just like yeah this is what happened to you that's wild <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I loved it and ended up going back the following year um, during the summer so that uh, so that I could get to see what was underneath all that snow. Um, and I've been back a few times since then, but uh, that that was definitely uh, uh, an experience. Yeah, it's fascinating to me when you visit a city in different times of the year and how dramatically different your experiences can be. Like even out here in L.A., right where we have great weather like i i've done trips to i've done a trip once to santa barbara when it was raining and it's santa barbara when it's raining versus like a nice sunny day is dramatically different so i can only imagine in montreal where it's below zero versus a nice sunny summer day (laughs) yeah yeah the um the last time i was there must have been i don't know six eight years ago uh it was in june around this time you know right around now and it was it was entirely different. Everybody was out in the streets. They had a whole um, whole major thoroughfare uh, in the plateau area, I want to say, that was just blocked off. And like, it's just like permanently for the, for like a week or however long, um, blocked off for basically like a, a long street party. And it was fantastic. The, the, the bars and restaurants took over spaces in the streets. It's actually a little like what I'm hearing some of the areas here in New York are going to be like the new the new post-COVID phase um, where places are, are able to um, expand since outdoor dining is all that's going to be allowed for a little while. Um, expanding into parking spots out on the street, the sidewalk, the whole thing. Um, and it was just like, you know, it was, it was amazing. Yeah, we've started to see that here in L.A. and... I mean, it's yep. uh, it's under weird circumstances, but it's sometimes creativity can come out of weird circumstances. So maybe oh. to the extent there are any silver linings out of this, especially in the food and dining world, maybe it's finding these new avenues to engage with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what uh, what has captured your curiosity recently? I mean, it's hard not to be uh, sort of it's hard not to see like everything going on in the world and not be focused on that. So, I mean, right now the sort of the, the really interesting, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things happening, a lot of crazy things happening, but um, in, in sort of my world in the food and drink media world, um, there's a, a whole sort of movement happening um, that is uh potentially toppling the main sort of paradigm of, of food media. And so I'm, I'm really, I mean, as far as it sparks my curiosity, I'm really interested to see if it'll stick and how it'll work. Um, a lot of the major food media outlets have been, uh, let's just say, not representative of the society, not representative of the restaurant industry that they represent and not representative of the larger food and cooking and eating world. And so um, I'm really interested to see if, if this is, uh, this is something that will, that will keep up. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's kind of exciting. Um, If a little, uh, you know, if I'm, I, I, even if I'm a little wary, yeah, about uh, about about how well it'll 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 stick, it's it's pretty exciting to see. It's it's exciting to see, and it seems like it is not only long overdue, but also a trend that is happening in media outside of food and and beverage as well. We had 
an interior designer sure. on the podcast recently, and she was talking about how finally a lot of these publications that previously were only giving a corner blurb are now being more receptive to kind of giving the covers and spreads that were sure. long overdue. So it seems like right. it's it's a trend that's that's happening throughout media. And I'm wondering, have you seen any publications specifically that you feel like have been leading, you know, leaders in 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 reforming their content so that it's more equitable? Um, or is it still very much a work in progress? It's a work in progress. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk in that direction, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, I think we're only at the early stage of people actually being held account, uh, held to account for that that talk, and so you know it remains to be seen what will come of it. But um, but it's movement, which is good. Um, there are publications that are doing great work that are focused more on telling other stories. Uh, there's a magazine called Whetstone um, that is amazing, and it's all about uh, by, uh, going to the source of food uh, internationally, uh, you know, uh, I think yeah, there was an article. The founder is a guy named Stephen Satterfield, who um, I, I know I know a bit, and he's he's very very thoughtful and intelligent about the way that he he explores these subjects, and he's gone to coffee farms and tea farms and you know, all over the world, he's gone to, you know, every issue is one, beautiful, but two, very much about, about representing people in places in a way that respects them and is not quite gawking as much as, um, or is not gawking as much as uh, engaging yeah. uh, with the subject. So yeah, things like that, that's, that's exciting. I want, like that's the that's the industry I want to work in, mm -hmm. um, and so I'm really hoping that uh, that you know people follow the, that lead, um, and it becomes more of a more inclusive, not just in a um, in a like diversity workshop inclusive way, but inclusive in a way where there really are multiple voices, there really are multiple perspectives, and people can really tell stories that are not all catering to the same like very small niche audience that's been considered the mainstream um sort of you know for no reason yeah absolutely and to your credit you're you're spearheading this in your own right with black food folks and i'd love to ask you about how you started that and the great work you're doing with black food folks sure so um you know it's interesting this moment and where things are because a lot of us already saw that, this, that there were problems to begin with. And, you know, so we'd already been working on our own ways of dealing with it. Right. Um, um, I've been, you know, like you said, in my intro, I've been working in food media for something like uh, 13, 14 years. And, you know, I've worked for a lot of different publications. I've I've covered a lot of different types of events and worked with a lot of a lot of brands, a lot of restaurants, a lot of chefs, a lot of everything. Right? Um, almost. I mean, I don't just 
cover food, but that's all, that's a, a, the vast majority of what I do. And through the years, I, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of people in various parts of the industry, you know, um, writers and chefs and editors and, you know, event producers and, you know, bartenders and, and my, my co-founder, Colleen Vincent and I, uh, uh, Colleen works for the James Beard Foundation and has been there for, for quite a while as well. And so she, between the two of us, we've had this sort of insider outsider perspective where we're not chefs. We're not, I mean, we're working in the industry, but we're also, we have the ability to sort of fly in and out. And so we have connections with a lot of people throughout. And one of the, the recurring subjects that would happen when we talk to, um, to black folks in the industry, whether they're chefs or writers or whatever, was, was sort of what we're seeing people talking about now, which is that everything, everything has to be presented to a very specific audience. The main, both the people who are putting together the magazine and the people who they consider to be their primary market are, are white, fairly well off, coming from particular backgrounds, uh, coming from particular regions, and have a very sort of fixed idea of what, what food is, of what stories are interesting, of, of anything like that. And, and so if you wanted to tell a nuanced story or a deeper story about anything that's not familiar to those people, you would get pushback. If you were a chef and you wanted to talk about not just, if you wanted to, to, to put together a menu that reflected not just general Southern food, um, but the food of a particular region, the food of a particular style, you know, you would end up being asked like, oh, well, where's the mac and cheese? Or, oh, where's the fried chicken? If you're a writer and you wanted to dig deeper into other, other stories, you know, it would always come back to, oh, well, you have to explain this to the audience. Uh, you know, you understand this, and, you know, and know these details. But, you know, our audience doesn't necessarily know this. And, and so instead of going deep into something, you have to spend three quarters of it explaining the concept. And then maybe you'll get like that one quarter to be able to mention something new. Um, you know, and so uh, Colleen always says I, I ramble a little bit when I when I do this. I really should have a better elevator pitch. But this the 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 short version of it was that um, black folks who work in in the industry always seem to have to explain themselves. Always seem to be sort of kept out of decision making and um, and and lack the support potentially of of the larger organizations. And so, um, and so we decided, well, you know, why don't we get some folks together, right? I mean, one of the things that would always happen is uh, we would, um, you know, either of us, we'd be talking to somebody and they would be telling us about the latest instance of X, Y, or Z happening to them. And 
Um, and we would say, oh, you should talk to this person. You should talk to that person because they've been through something like this before or they figured out a way to work on this. And so the, the very basic idea at the start of Black Food Folks was, was literally just put people in a room together so that they, they can meet each other and um, expand their community and support one another better. Um, from there, we started with Instagram. We started putting out posts, which were sort of profile posts of various people in the industry, again, for the same reason um, of letting people know that they're not the only ones out there. Um, our first event, um, our first event was supposed to be, you know, 20 to 30 people in a bar somewhere. And we ended up with a hundred people filling the room at, uh, at Colleen dad's like event space slash office. And, and there was a, like, that was the moment for me, um, where I realized, you know, the idea that there aren't very many of us in food, in drink, um, in, you know, media was a sham. Um, you know, whenever I photograph food and drink events, uh, you know, I'm one of a handful of, if that, a handful of black people in the room and being at an event that I put together with Colleen just by inviting the people we both knew and asking them to bring, you know, bring other people if they, uh, if they knew other folks who should be there, you know, we were able to pack the house. And so suddenly being in a room where I'm the only black person there, or maybe one of two or three or five uh, out of 50 or a hundred or 200 suddenly became less accept uh, like acceptable, mm -hmm. you know, and it became, as many times as I've heard folks say, oh, well, we don't know how to reach out to black, you know, black folks, so we don't know how to find them. We don't know this or that, you know, it rang hollow because we're not hiding, you know, we're here. And every time we talk to somebody, they say, oh, well, is anyone going to relate to that story? Or will anyone understand that? And it's it's become clear that the anyone doesn't mean anyone. It means anyone that we care about, mm -hmm. anyone that's in the audience that we've chosen, uh, we've chosen the market to. Um, anyway, this is a very long version of saying this is how this is how Black Food Folks happened. Uh, we started it as a way to connect people and to amplify voices in the community. Um, and in the last. Um, in the last couple months, uh, we've uh, we sort of pivoted a little bit um, by starting a series of talks and discussions on Instagram and Zoom um, as a way of of continuing the mission of uh, amplifying voices, of letting people know who else is out there and sharing ideas. Um, uh, it's been very exciting to see the conversations going on in their chats, um, in the comments, in 
the Zooms where people are in, are being introduced to new ideas, but also having their own experiences reinforced or or um, or just being reassured that that they're not alone, that they're not the only ones having this experience. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. yeah. And so it's been great because, you know, it's been a situation where, you know, I've spent over a dozen years being the only one in the room or one of a couple in the room. And, you know, and it doesn't, I don't have to be anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That gives me so much hope, not just because of how great the work is, but also because the food space, I think, is going to be a very, very powerful space in bridging the gap as it is as it's always been between cultures you know when i when i for example i watch somebody feed phil or an episode of no reservations i'm learning about this culture that i might not otherwise have uh, learned about for a while and so i think i think in the the power that food has to bring people together what what you're doing with black food folks gives me so much hope and i'm i'm curious what what can people do to be better allies in the food space and i i don't i'm i have a very small platform now but aside right. from aside let's say somebody who doesn't necessarily have a formal platform what what can we do to be better allies well so here's the thing right so uh i love somebody feed Phil. i love uh, you know the, uh, both of my, all of anthony bourdain shows um i'm i'm uh I was one of the the fans of that show, The Layover. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in in addition to all the others, but you know, it it sort of comes back to the same conversation because both of those guys were great and they were very thoughtful. Um, uh, um, you know, and you're in LA, so you've got Jonathan. You you had Jonathan yeah. Gold, right? Like. But it all comes down to still being um, a white guy explaining something mm-hmm. or exploring something. And they do it in a much more respectful way and they do it in a more fun way and, and all of that. But, you know, um, I want to see more shows like um, Samin Nusrat's show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that was amazing. Um, and, you know, what was what was great to me was that, like, the first episode, you know, y- you want to, the way these, the way these shows work a lot of the time, um, a lot of the time, uh, you know, it's, okay, if you're going to have Samin on, she's got to be talking about Iranian food, right? Which I or, loved because I'm Iranian, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like, but, yeah. right, <laughs> and that was great. Yeah. But the first episode, she's in Italy yeah. speaking Italian right. and like, and talking about, um, and talking with expertise uh, about the food there because, because we have depth, yeah. right? <laughs> um, exactly. You know, um yeah she's in the kitchen with her mom you know arguing over like how to make you know the the tadik um the crispy rice right yeah. yes right exactly <laughs> but she but she's also you know she's also a chef she's also like somebody with culinary knowledge yeah. right that, that 
goes beyond just what her heritage is. Um, you know, I haven't seen it yet. I've been a little bit of off TV during the, the, the lockdown, but um, but I want to see Padma Lakshmi's show. Um, yeah, and you know, I've been hearing amazing things about that. So I mean, just in the, you know, just in terms, just the question of of how to support, you know. That you can watch other shows that are repre- that are giving other perspectives, right? That aren't just a white guy, even an amiable and like lovable uh, white guy, respectfully meeting other people's cultures. Yeah. Like, you know, it's 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 bizarre how long it took for um, for travel TV shows to discover women mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> right right um um and so you know having having shows like that on supporting them watching them uh uh talking about them whatever um is is certainly a, a place to start and you don't need a platform for that um you know and supporting publications that are doing the work so so I mentioned Whetstone before. Um, uh, a, a friend of mine here in Brooklyn is launching a magazine called For the Culture, um, which is all about Black women and food. Um, that's Clancy Miller. Um, and, and that should be coming out sometime this year. She just uh, got full funding on um, uh, via... Uh, I don't think it was Kickstarter. No problem. She did a a fundraising campaign and and managed to get that funded um, earlier this year. It was supposed to be coming out around now, but then the lockdown, and so things are a little delayed. But, um, you know, see what other people are doing. You know, buy those magazines, subscribe to them, follow them, support them. Is, is, the, is, is really the bottom line um, of how to how to make those changes happen. That's so important because even among my friends and I, have we, as we've started to follow different people, like in the past few weeks, I've seen some awesome lists of like black women and wine, and I've right. been able, I've been fortunate to right. even uh, book some interviews to talk with some on on the podcast, and I've learned so much. And not just that, but my feed has changed. So. When you subs- when you follow different people, your explore page changes as well, in an, this amazing amazing way. Where now I'm now my friends and I are being exposed to awesome voices that we might not have run into before because the algorithm was just going off the people we had already followed. But now that we've incorporated right. new voices, we're now being exposed to different avenues, which to me has been a way better experience actually. Instead of just seeing the same right. iterations of the same thing posted in different places. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, um, and that's the thing. It's, it's the, the, the wider open your view is the more you're going to, you're going to bring in the more that you're going to understand. Yeah, absolutely. So transitioning a bit to your photography practice, I'm curious what drew you to photography in the first place and how you decided this is something you'd like to commit to professionally. Um, yeah, it was a kind of windy road. Um, like I said, I, when I was a kid, I didn't really have anything that I was, you know, I wanted to be that I was, uh, 
you know, I, I had friends in college who were pre-med and, and, you know, I remember going into freshman year thinking, how could they possibly know that that's what they're going to spend the next literally 10 plus years of their lives working on um, just to start, just to get there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, so I didn't, I didn't really know a lot of that, but I did, um, I, I did study photography, darkroom, black and white photography, um, back in high school. And so that had been something I always enjoyed. Um, but these were in the days of film and there was a much higher sort of barrier to entry than there is now or than there, there was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and so, you know, I, um, I worked in the tech world for a while. I, uh, I did IT working at some media companies. Uh, I did that for a, a good amount of time. And then in the process of that, um, ended up being involved with evaluating digital cameras and playing with digital imagery. And the more I got used to that the more i got used to taking photos uh again um even with just the point and shoot um you know making imagery became something that i i started doing i i, I found myself doing a lot mm -hmm. um you know i was writing for blogs and and websites and such and um and was photographing uh, to go along with that. And after a little while, I realized it was the photography uh, that was, that really drew me in the most. Um, I still wanted to tell these stories, but I wanted to tell them more visually. As you were talking and said point and shoot, it occurred to me that in a few years, we might need to explain what a point and shoot is to people. Right, <laughs> it's true. Cause... If you have a phone, you don't need a point. And shoot. Yeah, yeah, that's true. How that's true. how has your setup uh, changed over time? So what what do you take to a you know an event now when you're when you're assigned versus what were you taking maybe a few years ago? If it's changed, um, I mean that's more or less stayed the same since I went professional. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I'm I'm very much. Um, I like to be to be easily mobile. I'm not a like I don't drive, um, and so at least you know before lockdown, um, I don't you know I, I I would be on the subway going everywhere, and so um, I try to keep my my pack a little tight. I've got um, you know my SLR, um, and then call it two to three lenses. Um, I don't know if you want me to go. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, um, I shoot with a Canon 5D Mark, uh, Mark IV, and um, my go-to lenses are my um, 50 millimeter f1.2, my 85 millimeter f1.2, and my um, 2470 f2.8. Um, I've got a couple others that I may use for different projects, um, but but basically in my bag, at any given time that I'm going to a gig, 
I have uh, my the body does three lenses and my strobe, my flash, um, on me along with very many batteries of all kinds and, and memory cards. But um, but yeah, and that's that's my basic gear. Um, you know, occasionally if I'm doing a studio shoot, I might bring out my tripod or some lights or something like that. But um, you know, my work in a lot of my work is in kitchens and tight spaces. Um, I'm capturing action as much as I'm capturing food, and and so I'm um, I'm not really disposed to, or no one's really disposed to letting me set up like five lights, yeah. and like <laughs> you know, a whole you know reflectors and whatnot to get to get shots while they're they're actually trying to prep food and do their job. So. And certainly not when I was um, uh, shooting on food trucks and that sort of thing. So, wow, I didn't even think about. I I just went. My mind went straight to a restaurant kitchen. But yeah, food trucks. Uh, that's definitely tight yeah. quarters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I I've done. I uh, one of my first regular um, beats um, was was covering street food mm. um, when like in, you know, 09 or so when, um, when food trucks and street carts and, and all that became all the rage. Um, I photograph, I was, I was writing and photographing for a website called Midtown Lunch. Um, actually the, the founder of that site is in, has been in LA now for, wow, for 10 years. He, um, his name's Zach Brooks and, Last I heard, he was running Smorgasburg, LA. Oh, I love Smorgasburg. Um, For those that don't know, it's, yeah. it's a weekly, or it was before the lockdown, and I'm sure it'll be back soon if it isn't already. It was a weekly farmer's market style type setup in uh, in, in the Arts District in downtown Los Angeles every Sunday. And um, I actually just discovered, because during the lockdown, some of the vendors have been posting on different sites like this uh What's that site called? Gold Belly? Is that the one where you can get food from around the country? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. my brother and I just tried this delicious pastrami from Ugly Drum that was at Smorgasburg. And I think it, it honestly might be the best pastrami I've ever had. Uh, but, nice. But until, wow. until then, yeah, I'm, I was just blown away by, by that pastrami. So uh, anyway, sorry, you just, you just had Smorgasburg and triggered me. So please yeah, yeah. proceed. Well, so this is the thing. Yeah. So I... Um, uh, he has been working with them for for a while now. Um, I don't know the status of anything these days, but uh, but yeah, he had this site called Midtown Lunch, and um, I was one of the people who came in uh, to to fill in for him after he left um, and left New York uh, for LA. And so I was, you know, I'd go out on my lunch break, and when I was still doing my office job. Um, in IT, and I would, you know, cover what places are opening, what places are serving what new food, what trucks are are in what areas, and you know, there was a new. It felt like there was a new truck every couple days. So, um, you know, I would. I, I started out by doing that sort of thing, and then I, some some of my colleagues from from that site and I. Um, uh, well, some of my colleagues from that site uh, uh, 
did a street food cookbook and I was one of the photographers on that um, called New York a la carte um, by Alexandra Penfold and Siobhan Wallace and and that was great um, you know but it was a lot of a lot of squeezing into tight spaces and you, you can't tell uh, over zoom but I'm not a small guy um, uh, although I was probably a little smaller 10 years ago um, but uh, you know, squeezing into the truck, making sure you can get like, you know, angles, like, you know, it was good practice for, uh, for getting into kitchens. And, you know, once I was used to having everything, uh, in, in that small space, like every other kitchen seemed a little luxurious. That's, that's interesting because it makes me think, you know, my, I, t- I told you before we recorded, I have a friend who recently started a food line himself, and it's in some grocery stores out here in L.A. We've actually had him on the pod, Jordan Ellis of Boz Bites. And when he was putting together the packaging, he was looking into photographers, and he realized, as I mentioned, that food photography is a separate, separate animal, separate beast entirely. And so I'm wondering, totally. when you're behind the camera, what's different, when, you know, obviously in the terms of the space like you mentioned you you might be in tight quarters but when you're behind the camera what do you have to be aware of as a food photographer that a regular photographer regular i shouldn't say regular but a photographer who's practicing no, in a different you know form right. um might not have to be aware of so um when you're in the kitchen you i mean it depends on what you're photographing mm-hmm. right if you're photographing just studio I, I say just uh but if you're if, if you're focused entirely on food in the studio you're just taking what we call beauty shots of of dishes um you know that is different from being um being in a, a kitchen in a restaurant while they're while they're working for service and that sort of thing so i'll, I'll preface with that but in both cases um you need to know. You need to know how to handle the food. You need to know how to deal with the the timing because um, with with food photography, you're often just capturing a moment because food, you know, food wilts, it settles, it drips, and um, it gets soggy. Right. So you want to get it when it's the perfect, freshest uh, moment. And and, you know, that's the case in both. Like I I was um, I did uh, sort of test shooting with a a food stylist recently. And um, and that's there's a lot of patience involved and then a lot of like, okay, we have to get this right now. Uh, just yesterday I was shooting ice cream for something and, you know, you've got, you've got to catch that right at the right moment because it'll go from too hard to scoop to a puddle, uh, you know, a lot quicker than you can get that shot if you're not, if you're not on it at the right moment. So, um, so, I mean, there's a lot of that. In the type of work I do a lot of, um, which is in the kitchen with chefs, it really um, it's important to be able to understand the action 
um, so that you can anticipate what's coming. Um, it's I, I, I do other other photography too from time to time, and I can say that 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 if I don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm then I don't know where I need to be. I don't know how to anticipate the, the shot that I'm going to get. Like I, I've worked with enough chefs. I've worked in enough kitchens and I, I, I like to cook myself. And so over the years, I figured out enough so that I know that when, you know, when I hear corner hot, it means I need to get out of the way of the corner because someone's got something hot and they need to get past, right? Like, um, I mean, it seems sort of self-explanatory, but when you have like, you know, 20 people running around you and you hear people yelling and you don't know what's what, you know, it can be, um, it can be a little, uh, a little much to absorb. Um, and so if I see someone going in one direction going in the direction of the grill with you know uh some stuff they just took out of a marinade i know i need to get over the grill because i want to get the picture of that flare-up when when the meat first goes on the grill or if there's um you know if i can see the menu and know what know what the dishes are i can tell okay this dish is going to take this many steps and i need to capture this that or the other or, or like there's going to be prep and chopping and that sort of thing. And so I want to capture some of that. So I need to be there at the right time for those things. I mean, it's, it just helps to know your subject. Um, you know, I am, uh, I, I, I just have, a, I've had a lot of practice and I, I put a, a lot of effort into learning, um, uh, about, that world so that I, I'm familiar enough with what's coming that I can I can usually get the shot before it's gone. So let's say you get there and you're asked to shoot a food that might be delicious but might visually not be the most appealing. Like I can think of one of my favorite Persian dishes, hormisabzi, which is an herb yeah. stew. It looks like dung, man. Like it does not look, it does not look particularly appealing. But it's delicious. Beans are hard. Yeah. But so how do you make yeah. how do you make a food that doesn't necessarily look the most visually appealing right off the bat? How do you make right. that look good? Well, one, stews are hard in general. Um, but, um, but you know, you want to think about presentation, right? And if you have a chef or ideally a food stylist, food stylists are amazing um, because they are the ones who actually like in a cookbook shoot or magazines or whatever, often they're the ones that are actually like arranging the food uh, and some, usually cooking too, but they're arranging the food in a way that makes it look pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, and this is actually a thing that's that's another sort of bias of the way food media has been because you know views are hard to photograph, but 
you know, I've seen some beautiful photos of beef bourguignon, right? <laughs> and that's just another stew, right. right? I mean, I mean, there's nothing naturally beautiful about beef bourguignon, but someone is able to figure out, like, you know, you arrange it this way, you 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 put it on some, you know, you put it, you plate it a certain way so that you can you can get the cubes of beef or the shreds of beef. Um, you put just enough sauce on it so it's there, but you know, you don't just flop it all on, right? Like you have to put the effort into making the presentation work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible with all sorts of food. I mean, not everything's beautiful, but like if you have the right eye and the right knowledge of the dishes, um, that can, that really helps. Hmm. That's fascinating. I'll have to keep that in mind next time I'm at a restaurant yeah. trying to trying yeah. to figure out a shot. So two two last questions before we wind down with rapid fire. Sure, sure. One, mm-hmm. how has Instagram changed the food world uh, in terms of you know food photography for you? <laughs> and that is not a quick question. But again. <laughs> and uh, two, editing wise, once you're done with a shoot, um, what does your editing setup look like? What what software do you like to use? What's that process like for you? Um, okay. So Instagram, I mean, there, you could write a dissertation on (laughs) the effect Instagram's had on, on, on the food world. Um, and the photography world, um, in food, it's, it's become like, it's the place that everyone is. Right. Um, and it's interesting because when you're talking about different types of social media, uh, most chefs I know are not, they're terrible at email often. Um, they are rarely on Twitter unless they're particularly outspoken about one thing or another. Um, they might be on Facebook, but they're almost all on Instagram. Mm. Um, Instagram is a place where they can, I mean, just within the the food community, not even we will, like about. I'll narrow the scope of this massively broad question. Sure, sure, sure. I'll make it related to okay. you. How has uh, how has Instagram changed your, the nature of your work in food photography? Um. Well, on the one hand, the thing I was talking about with the the chefs on Instagram. I get a window into what they're doing and what they're working on um, across the world, right? I follow chefs um, in all, you know, in in a a bunch of different countries, wherever I'm going to be traveling. I follow, you know, the the chefs who are out there. Um, So it's it's amazing for research. Um, It's it's been great for community. I mean, it's become place the space where i spend more of my time um these days um as far as the actual imagery goes um i mean it's good to see other photographers work i think that i think that it's really easy honestly like some people get concerned because you you'll have clients who say oh well, i don't need to hire a photographer i can just use the stuff that's on instagram and 
then you look at the stuff on Instagram and you're like, well, that's not very good. Mm. Um, I think the more people have, are spending looking at pictures, um, the easier it is to tell the difference between people who have, who have honed the skills mm -hmm. and the people who haven't, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it's, it's, there are a million blurry, like orange pictures of a million different dishes all over the internet. Right. Um, you know, a lot of messy, messy, like color, you know, poor color, poor composition, like all of that stuff is there. Um, and so, you know, I think it makes, I think it makes those of us who made it our profession uh, stand out more. Mm. That's interesting because some, someone might think that it's, uh, it, it could have the opposite effect of that. There are so many photos. How does yours stand out? But no, by, by the, your sheer quality, it will stand out because there are so many people who aren't doing the right composition and whatnot and just aren't professionals, which makes sense. So the professional right. work right. will naturally stand out. And then if you could guide us through the workflow of your editing in terms of what that process is like. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'll shoot my images. I come home, I download them. I download them into a program called Photo Mechanic, um, which, um, which I can use for tagging and geotagging and dealing with the metadata and culling out the, you know, the, the trash shots, the, the flash didn't fire, someone walked in front of the camera, like whatever. Um, and then I, uh, I feed it from there into Lightroom, um, which is what I do my, my main editing in. I almost, I'm not a Photoshopper. I like, I have a license for Photoshop, but I, I don't know the last time I opened it. Um, I don't really do retouching um, so much as, um, as the sort of basic editing. Mm -hmm. um, that's just, uh, you know, part of my, part of my look, part of the thing that I do is, uh, is, is focus more on, um, on sort of reality documentary style. So it's, it, it's not, I want it to be as real as I can. Um, and that has the added benefit of saving you a little time, I imagine, when you're editing. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> nice ancillary benefit, yeah. for sure. So we'll wind yeah. down with uh, some fun rapid-fire questions now. Okay. We'll start with, what's an app that you can't live without? Well, I mean, these days it's Instagram, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> Fair enough. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Skill or superpower? Sure, we can do superpower. <laughs> I always wanted to fly, you know, when I was a kid, and I still sort of feel like that would be amazing. Certainly, it would be an easier way to get around without, like, being on the subway. Um, uh, but I think, I, 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 and this is, a, I think, a measure of me just getting older, Um uh, in, in recent years, I've been thinking it would be awesome if I didn't have to sleep. Mm. Um, if I could, if I could get be rested without having to go to sleep, I could sleep when I wanted to, but I didn't need it. 
I feel like I feel like it would open up my life in a whole other way. I'd be out shooting at, at all hours. I would be more productive. I could read, um, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I once read about this guy who was a president of something at Microsoft. His name is Chi Lu, and he gets by on four hours of sleep. He's figured out a system of like timed cold showers and all these crazy hacks really? to get by on wow. four hours of sleep um for the same reason there's just yeah. Some, there, yeah there's just some people who don't need that much sleep yeah too yeah and it, it's it sounds it feels crazy i mean i would you know i like being rested but like there would be there's something about that that like that quiet time yeah you know when nobody else is up yeah <laughs> That I feel like that's when I want to. That's when I want to get some work done. That's when I want to read. That's when I want to walk around, um, you know, and and explore the city at night. Um, but uh, you know, but I gotta get some sleep too. Yeah, hundred percent. And it was interesting to see to that point, like especially out of New York, the shots of places that are normally bombarded with tourists, but during the lockdown early on, were just completely totally eerie. That was crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So what's a place that you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Um, I, well, I haven't been to, I think I'd say Brazil, although there are a lot of other places I want to go, but, um, but Brazil is high up there. That sounds super fun. Um, and what's your jam as in a song you like to jam to? Like a specific song? Yeah. So what we do, we have a Spotify playlist that we add our guest song rec to at the end. Gotcha. So if you have one song you'd like okay. us to put in the playlist, feel free to shout it out. Sure. Um, Lyrics to Go by Tribe Called Quest. Ooh, nice. Sounds good. Yeah. Alrighty. And then lastly, where can people find you on social media or online? Um, I am, my website is claywilliamsphoto.com. Uh, my uh, Instagram and Twitter are at ultra play. And also at black food folks on Instagram, right? Of course. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so make sure to check that out. And if you'd like to check out the pod, you can find us on Instagram at HDYD pod. Thank you so much, Clay. Thanks for having me. Of course. 